of an office building can be tiring. The first thing Elizabeth Claridge did when she opened the door of her apartment and stepped into the foyer was to kick off her shoes. She stood for a moment wiggling her toes, and then she saw the yellow envelope lying on the little table. Her face clouded. Why do we expect unpleasant news when we receive a telegram? As she started to rip open the envelope, the doorbell rang. It would put off the evil moments. Elizabeth went to the door and stared at the girl who stood on her threshold. The girl with blonde curls and dimples and huge blue eyes. Hello, Beth. This is me. You? But, uh, You don't recognize me? I'm Peggy. Peggy Booth. Didn't you get my wire? Peggy Booth? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't recognize you, Peggy. You were such a homely little brat when you lived next door to me. You were a mass of freckles, and you had braces on your teeth, and straight, straight hair. What on earth have you done to yourself? Grown up? Well, I should say you have. How come you're in the city? Didn't you get my wire? I came into this apartment just one minute ago, kicked off my shoes, and then I saw a yellow envelope lying on the foyer table, and I was just opening it when the doorbell rang. Well, it must be my telegram. May I step in, please, before you read it? Oh, of course. I still can't believe your little Peggy Booth. <laughs> Put down that suitcase and give me one of those Peggy special kisses. <laughs> I always adored you when you were a little kid, Peggy. Oh, and I worshipped you from afar when you were the big, beautiful, popular <laughs> girl next door. I followed you around like an adoring shadow. I must have been an awful pest when you were entertaining boyfriends. Mm, you were. <laughs> then I'll read that telegram now. I'm glad it was from you, Peggy. I was afraid it might be bad news. But death or... Oh, no. Let's see what you have to say for yourself. <laughs> this is silly. Me getting here first, I mean. It certainly is. Be in town for a while. Can you put me up? Love, Peggy Booth. What are you doing in town, Peggy? I asked you before, but you forgot to tell me. Well, give me time and I will. But first off, I must run downstairs and ask the taxi driver to bring in my other baggage. Other baggage? Mm-hmm. There are four suitcases in the cab. With the one that's here already, that makes five suitcases? Oh, yes. I always think it's best to bring what you'll need when you're going to stay a while, don't you? I suppose so. I don't have to go downstairs, really. I'll just lean out of the window and call the taxi driver. It's lucky this apartment's in the front of the house. Oh, driver! Can you bring up my suitcases? I'm in the second floor, front apartment. Two-way. Thanks a lot. You're a darling. Oh, such a sweet taxi driver. So obliging. Well, naturally, he'd be obliging when you call him darling that way. If I've learned anything about men, I've learned that they like it when a blonde calls them darling. (laughs) Oh, and speaking of men, whatever happened to Clyde Breslin? The last I heard, you were all set to marry him. In just a moment, Hope Winslow will be back again. But first, why is dead reckoning called dead? 
Any navigator will explain the term as the calculation of a ship's position without astronomical observations by plotting on a chart the distances covered along each course which has been steered. And if he knows his nautical history, he might add that a little over a hundred years ago, this process was correctly known as deduced reckoning. Old log books had a space for entering deduced position, but the space on the page was small, and navigators took to writing in the abbreviation D-E-D. Mariners read it aloud as dead, and by usage gave us a more colorful, if less accurate, term. In this complex world, where word meanings are constantly changing, it's easy to be misunderstood. That's why it's a good idea to know your words. And now, back to our story with Hope Winslow. Whatever happened to Clyde Breslin? Elizabeth didn't make any answer, for the taxi driver was struggling in with four suitcases. She, not Peggy, paid the fare, tipped him generously, and he left grinning. And by that time, Peggy'd forgotten all about Clyde. Standing in the midst of the five suitcases, the blonde girl spoke excitedly. This is wonderful. It's like a dream being here with you, Beth. It's like a dream having you. You are a dream, Peggy. Well, the boys like me. But there aren't any really nice boys back in Gatesville. So I decided I'd try my luck in New York. I mean, get a job and all. Oh, then you're coming here to stay? Mm-hmm. Oh, aren't I lucky to know you? Mom would never have let me go to a hotel alone. How old are you, Peggy? Twenty-two. Just the age I was when I came to New York. But you are full of big ideas and beautiful hopes. And I was completely disillusioned. Well, why were you disillusioned? You asked about Clyde Breslin a while ago. Didn't you know that we broke up just before I left town? Nobody told me. But of course, I was only nine when you were 22. Where will I put my things? Well, I, uh, I have two small closets and one large storage closet. The small closets are full up, but I'll clean out the storage closet for you, Peggy. You can leave your suitcases on the shelves, and I'll put a rod up for hand. It's going to take me a little while to get unpacked. Well, uh, of course, you won't have to unpack all the suitcases. Why not? Well, I, I thought... But why not, indeed? I'll help you unpack, Peggy. And then we'll go out to dinner. I haven't very much food in the house. I was going to settle for a salad and a cup of tea myself. Well, Elizabeth, maybe if you don't mind, I won't go out to dinner with you this first night. Oh? There was a boy visiting in Gatesville a while back. He lives in New York. He was crazy about me. And when he left, he gave me his telephone number. If I call him, he'll take me to dinner. Oh, well, well, that's fine. Where's the phone? Uh, in the living room, on the corner table. This way, dear. Do you like my living room? Oh, it's nice. It's just sort of plain. Oh, that telephone, for instance. Back home, I have the most beautiful doll over the telephone. Big, rustly taffeta skirts with crinoline underneath. <laughs> well, I'm not the doll type, exactly. Well, you make your call. Okay. We don't have dials in Gatesville, but I guess I'm doing all right. Hello? Is this Glenn Sawyer? <laughs> oh, now. Well, I'm awfully sorry. Oh, you mustn't say that. <laughs> oh, you're bad. I got the wrong number. But he had an awfully cute voice. And what a line. 
<laughs> Maybe I'll call him again sometime, on purpose. Oh, Peggy. Well, it was the same number as Glenn's, except that it ended with a three instead of a two. I must write it down. Oh, darn it all. He had a much nicer voice than Glenn. But I suppose I'll have to settle for Glenn. After all, I know him. Peggy called the right number and made a date with Glenn Sawyer and then she took a shower and changed and rushed out to meet him. And Elizabeth collapsed on the sofa in her living room and closed her eyes wearily. And all at once it seemed as if Clyde Breslin was in the room, seated on the sofa beside her. Across the space of 13 years she still remembered the sound of his voice and the exact words he used just no use, Belle. I like you better than any girl I've ever known, but I'm not the constant type. I never will be. That redhead you saw me with the other night, I've been with her every evening for a whole week. But it would have been so easy to tell me instead of saying you had to go out of town on a business trip. I didn't want to upset you. I suppose you're not upsetting me now, Clyde. Oh, I'm sorry. Trouble is, you expect too much of a man. Trouble is, you want a man to be perfect. And the best of us aren't perfect, Beth. Men are inconstant animals. They're animals, all right. For one thing, you're too neat. Oh, I'll admit that you're something to kiss. And when you're in my arms, I forget the other girls. But you can't be in my arms all day and all night, too, after we're married. I never get my housework done under those circumstances. No, you never get your housework done. And I'll always have secretaries, Beth. And I'll flirt with pretty waitresses. I'll go to a studio party and meet a dame and... And there I'll be. Yes, there you'll be and here I'll be. So what's the solution? You name it. I suppose, uh... It's goodbye. Hail and farewell, so to speak. Perhaps we can meet for lunch or dinner occasionally. Wouldn't that be a cheap compromise? Clyde, you've called the turn. This is the end. And so help me, there'll never be another man in my life. Elizabeth Claridge jilted and embittered at 22. She was 35 now, and back in the present. Back in the living room that Peggy Booth had called nice, but sort of plain. Plain be darned, Elizabeth told herself. She liked it that way. She was glad she didn't have to cook dinner for her husband, that she didn't have to worry about papers tossed around and ashes on the rug and glasses making rings on polished tabletops. Nice, but sort of plain. That was Elizabeth's apartment the day Peggy Booth had moved in. But when a week had gone by... I don't know this place nowadays, Peggy. Don't you? I don't know my own life any longer. Everything's changed. Mom says I'm a real upsetter of lives. I've always prided myself on such an immaculate apartment. I've always been grateful for three closets, but now my clothes are crowded into one closet. Mine have overflowed the storage closet, that's for sure. And when I come back from work evenings, I don't find tidy rooms. There are undies draped over chairs and... Dirty cups and saucers and glasses fill every available space, and the sink's piled high with more dirty dishes. Daddy says I'm pretty, but a slob. I'm sorry. Truly, I am. 
One evening, when Elizabeth's boss, Peter Garrett, asked her to work late, she hesitated briefly, and he stared at her in amazement. You frowned when I asked you to stay on for a couple of hours, Beth. You've never frowned before. Is some guy waiting for you on the corner? Because if he is, you can run along. Oh, no, there isn't any guy, Mr. Garrett. The only thing is... Well, I have a guess. A guess? For how long? I haven't the vaguest idea. She's a kid I used to know back in my hometown. At least she was a kid then. But now she's a blonde bombshell. Yellow hair, dimples, yards of eyelashes. Well, well. If I leave her alone one minute after five, I'll come home to an apartment that's swarming with men. And again? Well, well. Oh, baby, sweet. She has the disposition of an angel. She never gets cross about anything. I've scolded her a couple of times for being untidy, but it hasn't bothered her one bit. You know, I remember coming up to your apartment once when you had flu. It was the neatest apartment I've ever seen. I ought to see it now. I'd rather like to. That's it. I'll tell you what, Beth. When we get through working tonight, we'll have a quick bite of dinner, and then I'll take you home. Oh, no, I'd be ashamed for you to see the place. Maybe it's Peggy I want to see. You never can tell. <laughs> oh, don't look so shocked, Beth. After all, I'm a bachelor, as well as your boss. In fact, I've tried to point the fact out to you a couple of times, but I never got anywhere. In just a moment, Hope Winslow will be back. The insignia of the armed forces of the United States of America have a fascinating history of development. They are colorful, purposive, and they are many. Their historical foundations go back into the history of mankind itself. Those things which man regards with awe, with reverence, and with interest become part of his symbolistic heritage. The silver Latin cross of the Christian chaplains was adopted in 1898 from the wooden cross of Jesus. The mosaic tablet surmounted by the Star of David was adopted for the Jewish chaplains in 1918. By 1902, the medical corps had decided on the caduceus as its symbol. It is a form of the staff of the ancient Greek god of medicine, Esculapius. The nurse corps followed this example, but added a capital N. In 1868, the signal corps took for its insignia crossed signal flags. Later, added a torch. In 1875, the present cross rifles insignia was adopted for the infantry. Before that date, its badge was a bugle, originating from the days of Robin Hood. But whatever the insignia, great is the pride of the American servicemen who wear them. And now, back to our story with Hope Winslow. Elizabeth and her boss, Peter Garrett, worked hard until 8. They were through eating dinner by 9. They reached the house at 9.30. As they came down the hall to the door of Elizabeth's apartment, noise surged out to greet them. Elizabeth shook her head hopelessly. My lease will be broken before I know it. Practically everything else in the place has been broken. Oh, you're a pessimist. Give me your key, Beth. Here you are. I nearly threw my arms around him. Don't worry at all, little lady. I would have been quite all right. In fact, I would have enjoyed it. 
Elizabeth mixed drinks. Later, she made sandwiches. She stood by helplessly as Peggy let loose a barrage of dimples and lashes at her boss. on. At the end of the week, Elizabeth realized that her boss had been at the apartment four times, and the three of the times he'd been the only guest. One evening, Elizabeth spoke sharply to Peggy. Peggy's eyes opened wider and wider until they were like blue saucers. But Peter isn't too old for me, Beth. I like mature men. I'm 35, and he's older than I am. He's just 38, and he looks younger. That's only 16 years older than I am. Want to know something? I think he'll propose to me tomorrow or the next day. And then I'll make him give me an emerald-cut diamond. Jill Masters back home, she was my favorite girlfriend, has an emerald-cut diamond. Although she is sort of a cheat. Uh, why is she a cheat? Oh, I'll tell you someday when I have time. It's quite a story. Well, when I have my diamond, I'll hurry home and get ready for my wedding. I'll bet you'll be relieved when you have this place to yourself. I'm afraid I've been a terrible disorganizer. Peggy had been a terrible disorganizer. Elizabeth, torn between the pleasant thought of losing Peggy and the suddenly desperate thought of her boss being tricked into an unsuitable marriage, was perplexed and bewildered. She was glad that Peter didn't phone the apartment during the weekend. She had time to think while Peggy moped. When Elizabeth went to the office Monday morning, Peter was there ahead of her. Well, how's the career girl today? Okay. And how's your child? She isn't my child. Oh, Beth, Beth. Not a hair out of place. Your dress is if it came out of a bandbox. But you ride to work on the subway, so you must rub elbows with life. 
Why don't you take a leaf out of Peggy's book? I don't want to take a leaf out of Peggy's book. I want to get rid of her, and the sooner the better. Marry her, for heaven's sake. Take her away from me. It's the only way I'll, I'll be able to stop seeing her. I know another way. So you tell me. And I will. Marry me. And then you won't have to see Peggy. You can leave her the apartment, lock, stock, and barrel. We'll get a place of our own. And, of course, I'll always be grateful to Peggy. Through her, I was able to focus your attention on me. Oh, Beth. Beth, darling. You're crying. Naturally, I'm crying. It'll be such a relief to have a man's clothing hanging in the closet. And one man's ashes instead of 50 men's ashes. And... Is that all you're thinking about now? Oh, of course it isn't all I'm thinking about. Why don't you kiss me, you idiot? You're right about Peggy. Heaven bless her for making me realize how much I love you. wrong to have a preconceived notion about your future. Nobody can say what's going to happen. You may have your life all mapped out, and then a chance nod, a swift and warm smile, and your heart turns over, and your whispering street moves in another direction. Peggy Booth spoke of a girl back home named Jill Masters who had an emerald-cut diamond. meet Jill Masters and hear all about the emerald cut diamond, which she got by unfair means. In fact, Jill Masters had a bitter lesson to learn, as you'll discover when I bring you her story. Until then, this is Hope Winslow saying goodbye from the Whispering Streets. Today's program was written by Margaret E. Sangster. Featured in the cast were Barbara Eiler, Gloria Grant, Tommy Cook, and Bob Crane. Whispering Streets was directed by Gordon T. Hughes and produced by Ted Lloyd. Your announcer is Dan Coverley. Whispering Streets has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.